Hello, this is Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the January Atoms. Parsimony. Parsimony, the quality of frugality and the use of resources, is an unusual term. Unusual in that it has both pejorative, personal, meanness and complementary connotations. A parsimonious statistical model, for example, makes fewer assumptions, has less variables and has greater explanatory potential. In short, it is better. My choices this month are all, in a positive sense, parsimonious. Each takes a question and with a laudable lack of analytical noise, provides either an answer or a new angle. Acyclovir and zoster immune globulin in the immunosuppressed child. Few areas generate the level of rigid adherence to tradition as post-exposure prophylaxis, IV immunoglobulin or acyclovir, for immunosuppressed children in contact with varicella. To date, there have been no trials and the proponents of each method likely, therefore, to have been manacled by prior belief rather than evidence. It's hard to achieve consensus even over what constitutes contact Is it passing in the same school corridor, inadvertently playing with a sibling of a child with active lesions, or being a household contact? In an admirable attempt to, if not fully resolve this question, at least inform a subsequent trial, Bate and colleagues undertook a pilot across UK oncology centres, screening for eligible seronegative children whom had had contact with a case, defined as greater than 15 minutes in the same room, at home or face-to-face conversation. Of those eligible, many declined for pragmatic reasons, travel, extra medications and blood tests, and the eventual numbers subsequently were too small from which to draw any inferences. Were it not for the small but not negligible risks of IVIG, the matter could be allowed to rest. The risk, however, should compel us to continue rather than leave the issue languaging in the doldrums of equipoise, even though the answer will probably need a pan-European and US collaboration to generate the numbers required for an adequately powered trial. Smartphones and cardiac monitoring. One of the frustrations of investigating palpitations in children is knowing when to draw a line. Is a 48-hour or even a two-week recording, if normal, reassuring? And if so, why? Is there enough concern to consider a long-term subcutaneous event monitor? Add to this the discomfort children experience using the standard devices and the inevitable inconsistency in the time that leads are applied, there's clearly scope for a rethink. McInnes and colleagues tested a one-lead, easily activated smartphone ECG in a group of children referred to their centre for assessing against a group of historical controls whom had undertaken standard continuous monitoring. Though the groups can't, of course, be directly compared, The rate of capture of arrhythmias was far higher in the phone group and the level of satisfaction higher. For better or worse, the majority of school children have a smartphone. There are, of course, downsized ubiquitous mobile phone ownership, but this is one area where they can unequivocally be put to good use. Two papers now on obesity. The first looks at growth patterns. Very few papers on obesity now say anything very new, but Isojima's study on seasonal growth patterns in a huge cohort of Japanese preschool children is one of those rare beasts that does. It is well known that the BMI in most children increases in the winter and is lost again in the summer. 
in this cohort of over 15,000 children, an adverse growth pattern, greater rate of gain in the summer, was associated with and predictive of school entry obesity. The reasons are likely to be complex. Sedentary behaviour and extra intake are possible, but counterintuitive at this time of year. Is it perhaps the result of even earlier hypothesis or hypothalamic programming? One would hope that identification at this early stage in life would be amenable to intervention. But is that already too late? The second paper is about obesity and depression. Though the long-term physical and metabolic consequences of obesity are only too well recognised, little attention to date has been paid to the psychological ones. Sutarian's meta-analysis of observational studies explores the association between obesity and depression. The 22 studies, including 143,000 children, showed both contemporaneous and, more importantly, temporal associations between obesity and depression, with an OR in the longitudinal studies, the important ones, of 1.5, noting persistent effects in girls. These are not surprising, but they are helpful and raise two questions. Does one screen for depression at an earlier age, in the light of an adverse BMI trajectory, and does this alter the threshold? for treatment in an adolescent with obesity. How many of us really assess mood in children at the upper end of the BMI distribution? And if not, why not? Milk and mucus. In a brilliant thesis on the purported association between milk consumption and mucus, Ian Balfour Lynn takes us on a historical journey from the 13th century Egyptian court, the earliest record, to Saludin, the great treatise on asthma, via Dr. Spock's seminal 1960s series, to the present. The potential mechanisms are scrutinised before the myth, and all its strands, is firmly debunked. A heady cocktail of history, anthrosociology and science, and my editor's choice for the month. This piece of folklore seems some way from where we started, but examined closely, the parsimonious scientific approach becomes clearer. One hypothesis, one question and one answer just like all good papers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out the website adc.bmj.com.